welcome to episode 28 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast about journalists. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with more than eight years' experience in Brazil and China. This week, I spoke to Tommy Oladipo, a news anchor for DW News, a German television broadcaster along the lines of the BBC in the UK. Tommy came to my attention at the suggestion of Kwasi, a freelancer in Ghana and a friend of the podcast that I've mentioned before. Kwasi wanted to know why Tommy had left his job at the BBC covering violent conflicts in Africa to be a news presenter in Germany. I looked at his career and thought, wow, he's gone from the most hardcore of jobs reporting on the carnage of Africa to being a polished anchorman presenting the news. That really is a hell of a range, you have to admit. His story will take us from the UK to Nigeria, Kenya, and finally Berlin, with a few other stops along the way. You get the sense of the difficulties covering Boko Haram in Nigeria, and also the toll it takes covering violence nonstop. I think his story towards the end of when it is right for a journalist to cross the line and help someone in a conflict is particularly poignant. We also talk a bit about what it's like to be an anchorman, what I see as a fairly unique position in the news business. And I believe we'll answer the question of why he left the BBC after 12 years to join DW News. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Tommy Oladipo, a news anchor for DW News in Berlin, Germany. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. If you wouldn't mind setting the scene for us, if you could give us a little bit about where you are, both geographically in the world and physical space you're in, what time it is, and a little bit about what your past work week has been like. Right. So I am in Berlin, in Germany, and I am in our apartment, sat at a dinner table. And it's Thursday, so it's been a public holiday today, which I didn't realize because I'd been indoors all day and not really doing much until I had to go to the shops and realized that everywhere was shut down. And that was towards the end of the day. <laughs> so it's been that kind of week for me because it's been a quiet one. I haven't been at the office this week. So I've been indoors just with the family here. The occasional getting out to go for a walk because it's only so long you can stay indoors. And every day we try to get out and get a bit of sun, walk around our area, see the neighborhood and come back in. So we've only been in Berlin since at the end of September last year. So is that six or so months? So we're still getting to know our area. So yeah, it's a good time for us to get out and explore the neighborhood. Yeah, it's nice you're able to do that. We're still in the thick of it here in Brazil. I haven't gone out much in two months, but I hear things yeah, are lifting slightly in Germany. You're a news presenter currently. So when you do have work to do, is it possible to work from home or do you have to go into a studio? I go into the, the office, which is not far from where I live, so I'm able to walk. It's a long walk, but it's good for me because I don't want to be getting on public transport at this time and worrying about surfaces and being in an enclosed space with people. But I'm able to get into the office, get on with my work. Obviously, things have changed now, and we've had to scale back some of our work. Well, my work is not affected, but other departments have had to scale back and We've had reduction in the number of people in the office, also so that we can spread out and not be sitting as close as we used to. But it's interesting, certain things have changed, like even just going in to present and having my makeup. I have to do the makeup myself, and the artist pretty much gives me a tutorial and tells me add a bit more under the eyelids or whatever and use the sponge. So I'm picking up one skill <laughs> during this, <laughs> this. But no, work carries on. The news has to be told, so... 
I get in and present the news. Cool. And then the first part of the interview is really to give us some idea of how you got to where you are today and kind of your path through journalism. I like to start way, way back at the beginning. If you could tell me a little bit about where you were born, what growing up was like, your early education years, and if you started to show an interest in journalism or writing early on. I was born in the UK. I was born to Nigerian parents. My parents were studying there. At the time, a lot of, well, a lot of Nigerians still go to the UK, but at the time, a lot of Nigerians went there on government scholarships. And my parents were among those, and they were doing their masters and their PhDs. And I was born just as my mom was doing her PhD. So my dad had finished his and returned to Nigeria. My mom was finishing, and it's a bit of a crazy time for her because she had three children and alone in in that setting with us. And so I was born in the city of Leeds, up north in England, and we had an enjoyable time there. And we moved back to Nigeria when my mom was done with her PhD, and we started sort of getting used to life in Nigeria. But at that time, that was under the rule of Ibrahim Babangida, who was the head of state then, the military head of state. And things were getting a bit difficult. So at the time we were coming back to Nigeria, a lot of people were actually on their way out of the country. And people were actually asking my parents, you know, why are you coming back? This is the time to be heading out. And we moved to a city or a town in the north of Nigeria called Zaria. And my parents were both on the university there. So it's a university town. And pretty much everyone in our neighborhood, left the country. Australia, Canada, UK, wherever they all, my best friend at the time went to the US and they all just vanished. And that was probably just by my estimates, but I think Nigeria, Nigeria has lost from that brain drain. That's remarkable because these were all prime academics and professionals in their fields. Anyway, so... How old were you, just out of curiosity, when you moved back? I was a toddler, so I was probably, I think I was two when we came back. So at the time, lecturers in Nigeria were among the people who were speaking up against the government. So in the unions, you had the journalists, you had the union workers, and you had academic staff who were among those speaking up against the regime. And the government then started to suppress and clamp down on lecturers and they wouldn't get paid and things like that. And after a while, my parents decided, you know, this is getting too much. So my dad decided to move to Lagos, which is the biggest city in Nigeria. And he had a background in computer science and programming and all that kind of stuff. That was what he studied. This was the days when a computer was the size of a room. And he told us stories about how the computer would heat up and they would pour water in it to cool it down. So those were early days. And computers started to shrink. And he got in early and he said he'd move to Lagos and get into trying to introduce people in Lagos to computers and teach people how to use things and data analysis and any companies that needed work done. And so he got into some businesses and consulting for international organizations. And then he had a deal go sour, which was where a partner was really crafty with him. And they had a massive deal with an international organization. And this person basically ran away with the huge pot of cash they were paid. And so it was just, ah, oh, you know, I've come all the way to Lagos and another dream dashed and things mm -hmm. were just getting harder. And so my mom was the one sustaining the family for a while with her job as a lecturer. My dad was, you know, hustling as they call it. And he tried jobs in the Middle East and he tried everywhere and was just trying to find a way for us. But at that time, when we were in Lagos, 
My mom is a linguist. That's her background. She's a professor of language and linguistics. We grew up, me in particular, I was, a, as they say, voracious reader. I used to read like crazy. And I look back at some of the things I read then, and I realize the sort of six to nine-year-old Tommy was probably one of the most intelligent kids in the world of his age group. So I had a way with words at the time, and I seemed to do well in conversation, even though I was a bit of a shy kid. But when she got me engaged, that was my thing. I read books I would struggle to read today. There was a series called the African Writers Series back in that time, and these big African names like Chinua Achebe and Ngugi Thiongo. And I used to read those books, and I read them through. And this is aside from the fact that I had read all the Charles Dickens and Annie Blyton and all these other sort of classics, but those were nothing to me. Reading my mom's books, that was what I really enjoyed. And I guess maybe it's because of the topics, but to read these books that had African themes and that I found more exciting and maybe more relatable. I don't know. I just really enjoyed these more complex books. Like, so the, what are some examples? The, these are some of the books that are considered great African classics. Chinua Achebe's Things Fall Apart, The River Between by Ngugi Thiongo, Not Yet Uhuru. I can't remember who that was by. There was another one called Who Killed Mangy Dog. But they were all a part of a series called the African Writer Series and No Longer at Ease by Chinua Achebe as well. They were all released around the same time in the 60s. So like sort of the first wave of African authors that made it big globally, basically. And they were from across the continent. So I thoroughly enjoyed reading that. But then it's weird because all of a sudden my passion for reading tailed off. Maybe it was the shift. But when we went around the time we moved to Lagos and we settled in properly, then there was more TV for me to watch. And before that, television started at 4 p.m. and ended at, I think, 11 on midnight. So you had the whole day to do other things. But until we got a proper TV connection, I wasn't watching as much. And then all of a sudden, you know, CNN on the television. And I remember watching the O.J. Simpson trial and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And there was a guy on CNN called Reese Khan who was presenting the news at the time. And I thought, man, this guy has a really cool job. I want to be like this guy. But I never really followed through on it. It was just a thing in my head. I'd love to be like this guy. In my head, I actually wanted to be a pilot. And I followed this through right until high school, really. Yeah, so my family finally got a break to leave Nigeria and we moved to Kenya. And that was finally, oh, all the hardship. This was proper hardship we suffered in Nigeria at the time because there were no jobs for people. We had our family, but we had cousins who lived with us and we had to support them as well. And so everybody was just going through a really hard time in the country and everybody mm -hmm. was for a way to leave. So we finally got out and we moved to Kenya. And then weirdly enough, Kenya was just sort of like a great contrast for me. It just felt like, oh, wow, there's a whole new other world out here. When I was younger, because we just moved back from England, England was my frame of reference because it was all my family talked about. Oh, when we're in England, this, when we're in England, that. And I was brought up pretty much as a Brit. I don't know if that makes any sense, but that was still the frame of reference for my older brothers. And so we still believed we were in England. We still behaved as if we we're in England. We still made reference to things in England, hmm. almost as, oh, we're just in Nigerian holiday. And so moving to Kenya was like, oh, wow, there's another world out here. 
And so I, I went to the school, which was very multinational. It was full of like diplomats kids and their parents working for international NGOs like the UN and stuff. And that opened me up to another set because I'd never been in a setting where you have all these kids from around the world and kids have different experiences. And in the same class, you've got 10 nationalities. And it was just mind blowing for me. And so that got me interested in different cultures. So I was in that school for a bit. And then after a while, I had to move schools again. So if you're keeping count, I think I went to three primary schools and I went to four secondary schools, four high schools. So, yeah, that's quite a lot of moving. <laughs> yeah. But my final high school, that was less international. Still had a bit of people from different countries, but it was less international and it brought me more into a proper Kenyan context. And that's when I began to confront a culture to be a proper foreigner. And that's when people would ask me questions that I thought were silly and ignorant questions and things like that. That's when I began to be aware of what it is that being different is, that people see things based off, you know, if they've only seen Nigeria in the news and it's three Nigerians who got arrested for peddling drugs, that's what they think of Nigerians. And until they see you and see that you are different, they have that picture. And so there are a lot of people who said derogatory things to me because I was Nigerian and I felt myself having to defend my country, even though I wasn't a big fan of my country, but all of a sudden I became mm -hmm. the advocate for my country. And so that was high school. And then I also went to university in Kenya. as a university called um, Daystar University where I studied communication. And from there, but oh, sorry. So while I was in high school, my older brother then decided he wanted to become a pilot. And I thought I was the one who wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> and but obviously he's older and he's getting closer to university. And so he went off to community college in the U.S. and then just flying school and carried on. And I thought, oh, okay, now I can't be a pilot because I look as if I'm trying to copy him. <laughs> I remembered my other thing, which I liked, which was Riz Khan back on the news. And I thought, I still like media. I loved the radio. I thoroughly loved radio because we used to listen to the BBC and my family. Like the BBC was like the extra family member right from when I was born. Mm -hmm. So... That became my thing. And I thought, this is it. So I went to university, studied communication, and we had a student radio station. And a lot of people who joined the student radio station, it was a way for us to just experiment and learn how things work in the real world. But I seemed, I was so obsessed with this media thing that everybody looked at me and thought, this guy has got some other job somewhere where he does this thing because he's so good at it. Like he seems to know his way around and Everybody would call me if they needed technical help or whatever. And everybody just assumed this guy seems to know where he's going. But really, I was just going on the fly. You know, I was just trying to learn. I was just trying to explore. And I would spend hours in the studios. We had limited broadcast time. But when it wasn't broadcast time, I would be in there with a couple of other mates of mine. And we would just explore things. How does this equipment work? And what's it like to cut together jingles and things like that cut together small productions and i just worked on those things over and over and over and i was in such a hurry to get out of university so i took extra credits and just made sure i didn't spend too much time here because i really wanted to get out into the world what sort of programs were you doing i mean was it a bit of everything music news yeah. talk it was very out there just sort of whatever the students can come up with i hosted a breakfast show i think at a point. No, it wasn't breakfast. It was sort of a mid-morning show. I moved to an evening show 
presenting rock music because I was a fan of rock and it was called, is it called the Mosh Pit or the, something like that? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, that was my thing and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I had a rock band and we used to come hang out in the studio and just listen to metal or whatever it was. So that was my thing. But I was so interested in just getting done with university and moving on to the next world. Why was that, do you think? I think the more I explored, the more I realized there's more to do. I felt almost constrained by being in university. And that's, I guess, how I've always been. I remember as a child when we were in school and we had these textbooks and I didn't see why we needed to spend so much time on one topic when there's a really exciting topic, three topics down. And sometimes we never got to those topics. But I was almost not a rule breaker per se, but I was just curious about things. If anything, I think that distracted me from being a top student at school because I didn't have focus and I was always trying to look for what else, you know, what else is there, what else is there. And so that's also why at uni I felt I needed to see the other side of things. I needed to see the world on the other side. That makes sense. So did you come out of university with some sort of plan or what happens after that? So there are two Tommies. There's one that believes in himself all the way and then there's the other one that's the complete opposite. You know, it's almost like <laughs> Jekyll and Hyde kind of one takes over and the other takes a back seat. And at that time, it was the overly ambitious Tommy that took over and optimistic. And I wasn't quite sure what I would do. I mean, I watched certain programs on TV and I thought, yeah, I could try and chase an internship there at that station. Or, and worst case scenario, I thought to myself, if I'm not able to get a proper job straight out of uni, you know, I talk to my parents, see if they can, I don't know, get some money together, buy me a, a Mac. And my plan was I had a camera, so I get a Mac and I film stuff and edit and just make productions. And I thought I can go to different people that are trying to make infomercials or whatever it is and pitch and just try and make my way as a video producer. That was my idea of how I was going to make it in the world. So how did that work out then? Before you graduate, you have to do a certain number of credit hours in internship and I think the equivalent of a semester. I then thought about, you know, where to go and I kind of lost hope because I wasn't really getting leads to go to certain places that I wanted to. And then randomly, my brother told me, oh, by the way, I once met this journalist from the BBC and, you know, just give him a call. He's actually based in Nairobi where you are. So give him a call and see. I called this producer, BBC producer, and this was in October that year. I'm trying to remember what year it was. And I called him and he happened to be out of the country. And he said, oh, I'll be back in country next week or in two weeks time. So call me back. And I called him. And every time I'd call him, he'd say, oh, yeah, I'm busy or whatever. Call me back next week. And I did that every week or every two weeks, maximum two weeks <laughs> between October and April. So oh, wow. that, <laughs> yeah, I, I kept on pestering him until one time he just said, OK, you know what? Come into the bureau on a certain day and meet the boss. I thought, okay, great. So I had an exam that day. So I had to do the exam on one side of town and dash across the other side. And I was running late, but I eventually got there, got to the BBC bureau, met the boss. I walked in and I was introduced to him and he was like, oh, okay. And he asked me, when are you starting? <laughs> and wait, that's it? Okay. So I, I gave him a date and because I was expecting to be much harder than that. And that was it. And I got in and, and started my internship. That was in May 2007. Yeah, so I called him from October 2006 all the way till April 2007. Yeah, that's good persistence. (laughs) And how long did the internship last? So it was the equivalent of the summer semester. So that was supposed to be three months. 
But I did the three months and, well, I had a few more credits. I think I had two, two classes to go, but it pretty much felt like I was done in uni. And when my three months were done, they were so happy with me at BBC that they said, we're going to offer you a rolling contract, a three-month contract, and we'll see where it goes from there. So after I finished that initial internship, I just carried on as a freelancer with my three-month contract. And I did my remaining classes as evening classes one semester and I was done at school so I had all the time to carry on with this work and then it just carried on the rolling contract was renewed a few times and then picked on from there and I became part of the furniture basically. (laughs) And so what type of work were you doing? Were you doing on the field reporting? Was it all off camera? Was it producing? Was it writing? What exactly were you doing? Right so my first couple of weeks I just tagged along, really, followed reporters when they were going out. If they needed me to get Vox Pops, which that seemed to be my designation, I guess everyone hated doing Vox Pops. So I was the one who had to do a lot of them, and I hated it as well, because walking up to strangers and asking them questions, and they all refused to speak. And I don't consider myself the most outgoing person in that sense. I'm very reserved. I'm very quiet. So I'm not an extrovert. So it's really hard for me to get on the street and just talk to anybody. But I did that for a bit. And then I watched as people edit, edited their stories and watch for what they kept in stories and what they cut out and things like that. I studied how people recorded and how they gathered their sound. This was radio, sorry. This was largely radio. Uh, I watched how they recorded. I watched their intonation. I watched, you know, different things. And then, but one thing I noticed was people were doing all these stories, but nobody was doing anything that had to do with the arts and had to do with culture and things like that. And so I started pitching stories. And I remember my very first story was about a hip hop festival in Nairobi called Wapi. And it was just basically rappers and graffiti artists and things like that just coming together. I just did a random feature and those kind of stories were not getting on the BBC very much. Mm-hmm. So I started pitching those kinds of things. I went off and looked for people making films in the slums and I looked at street artists and I just did all those kinds of quirky stories that Nobody really did because at the time the bureau was, it was some very top quality journalists in there, but they were all focused on the big stories. And Kenya was approaching an election. And obviously the election is what, what everyone was talking about. And for me, I just thought, you know, no one's going to do all these fun stories. So let me do them. And then it built from there. Cool. I listen to a lot of BBC radio. And yeah, those types of cultural stories are great. I mean, they always lead with 20 minutes of coronavirus these days, um, or they lead with whatever Trump is doing, and you kind of have to hang around to the end. But those stories are always a highlight. So what's the next step for you? I had been on this rolling contract for a while, but I was getting an intern salary or thereabout. But I was pretty much doing the work of a regular reporter. And my boss said, we need to upgrade you. But I had a Nigerian passport or have a Nigerian passport in Kenya. And that means they need to put me properly on the books. And that meant a job needed to be there. And I needed to apply for a job and I needed to be taxed and things like that. And it was looking really hard. And then all of a sudden, my boss left just overnight. And I thought, oh, no, okay, I have nobody to fight for my space. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to the main Africa boss, a guy called Joseph Urungu was based in London. Joseph Orungu is an amazing guy. And I spoke to him. I said, hey, I've been to the bureau in Nigeria, the BBC bureau there. And there doesn't seem to be much going on there. There's a few reporters, but there's quite a lot of space for me to do stuff. So, And being Nigerian, hey, I'd love to go out there. And he said, yeah, why not? We can work out something for you over there. And so it all just happened at that time. And I remember moving 
And I remember very vividly because the day I moved was the U.S. election day. And so the day I arrived, or the, the morning after, was the 5th of November. So Obama had just been elected. And I remember watching that overnight or that morning. Anyway, I moved to Nigeria and that was a whole new world. That was a whole new world. I mean, I, being Nigerian, I thought I could grasp just how to work in that country, but it was crazy. I spent a year doing freelance. They had salaried reporters. So obviously if there was a story, they had to get to them first. But if they were not available, then I would be the one to do stuff. But it gave me a chance to also work for other BBC departments, to shadow certain big correspondents when they were over. I got to be part of a big documentary series by a journalist called, a veteran called Jonathan Dimbleby. And so these were the kinds of experiences that that next year gave me as I settled into Nigeria. But Nigeria is crazy. But that was where things kind of took off. What did you find so challenging about reporting there versus reporting in Kenya? I don't think it was necessarily the reporting aspect. I think it was life in Nigeria. Because I think I'd almost forgotten what it was like to be in the city so cramped and, you know, hard to, to move around and loud and there's no electricity. So you always need to have a generator and you, for a generator because you use it so much, it breaks down and you need to have a backup generator in your house. And when you're working, it's hard to work when there's so much generator noise. It never occurred to me that every time I had to go to some place, you need to tell them, oh, please, could you turn off the generator so we can do this interview? And then maybe you're interviewing someone in a room. You need to get the generator off. You need to get the air conditioning off because the noise of that. And then all of a sudden the room, just because Lagos is humid and it just heats up in seconds and you're drenched in sweat. And so that was the things you need to factor in. And then just it's a lot more aggressive out there. So just people in your face. It was just tough. It was tough. And I struggled. I must say I really struggled. But I eventually got a contract with the BBC reporting for radio. And I sort of picked up from there. I did that for a couple of years before I moved to TV. So were you there the entire time up until you moved to Germany now? And if so, no. could you just give me some highlights? So I got to a point where I was getting disillusioned because I was doing my reporting, but I just felt like, okay, this isn't really going anywhere. I started to lose interest. And I think partly because of just the stress of living in Lagos. And I decided maybe I should take a break and go to school. And I was looking up universities and I was filling out forms and I decided this is it. I'll find a way, get back to school and then find another path from there. I was planning to do my master's and I actually filled a form and... I can't remember if it was for a master's, but it was for something, some program somewhere, you know, a fellowship or something. And I was going to send it off. And literally the day before I planned to send it off, I got a phone call from London, from the base in London. They said, hey, we're planning this new thing where we're trying to incorporate a lot of indigenous, I guess is the word, reporters into our mainstream news coverage. And you're one of the ones whose name has come up a lot and would like to get you involved in this. So I'd like to bring you to London and spend some time. So yeah, I went to London, did some training, embedded into the mothership, basically. And I got to work with some of the big names and learn from them. And while I was there, I did TV training as well, reporting as a television journalist. And that seems so exciting for me. So between 2011 and 2012, I spent a lot of time learning television work. And then that's where things then changed because then 2012 became my proper posting out 
as a television reporter. At the BBC, you, you do everything still. You do your radio, you do online, and you do television. But now I had that television angle with things, and then that brought me onto the big stage, and that's where I started reporting, like the big network news bulletin called the, the 10 o'clock news and the 6 o'clock news. It was like the holy grail, basically. And so, yeah, I rose from being this curious intern who laughed at everybody's jokes when they were not funny to being <laughs> this bright, shining young talent that everybody was asking me, oh, who's that kid? Um, he's, he's really good. And, whatever. and it was a really exciting time because I was being touted as the future of the BBC and all these theories about, oh man, you're going to be amazing and things. And so it was interesting that at that time, things started building up in Nigeria security-wise. So I'd been covering all kinds of things from business to arts to politics to whatever. But like 2009 in northern Nigeria, the Boko Haram conflicts was picking up. It had started exploding. Then there was a major bombing in Abuja in 2010 or 11. And then 2012, January, there was a major attack where they attacked a city called Kano in the north, and they attacked several police stations. And that was like the major sort of, okay, now this group wants to be noticed. Now it coincided with my rise in television. And I became that guy reporting on the Boko Haram conflict. And I became the go-to guy. And I reported on that for quite a bit. And that really, I would say, elevated me because I got to get immersed in the story, both from the civilian point of view, but also from the military point of view. And then from there, yeah, it just grew. It was an interesting period then between 2012 and 2015. So covering Boko Haram, my understanding when I was there is you could kind of go up to the northeast, you could go to Kano, things were kind of fine in the city, but everywhere outside was extremely dangerous. But it's not like a hot war, it's more like you never know when something's going to surprise you, when there's going to be some ambush or things like that. So, I mean, it sounds quite dangerous. And for a text reporter, you know, you can kind of keep a safe distance. But as a TV reporter, I imagine you have to go out there quite a bit. How did you find that? Did it seem very dangerous? Did that worry you at the time? It was utterly frustrating because Boko Haram, there were certain areas which are no-go zones and there were certain areas where they used to hit with bombings or whatever. So I was doing TV, but I was also doing radio. So it wasn't every time I did television, but radio was pretty much every day and you had to do maybe a short 30-second report or two-way interview with London or whatever. So pretty much every day you were doing something. And access was just a problem. There's a city called Yola. We could go to Yola. That was fine. Sometimes we could go to Meduguri, which is the biggest city. That's actually the city where Boko Haram started. Rare occasions we could go there. We could go to Kano. We could go to a lot of these other cities, but we couldn't get to the heart of the conflict. And you see, unlike other conflicts, we all watched the Iraq war and how it was troops storming certain towns and reporters embedded with them and you're getting in and you're seeing stuff. And for me, as a journalism student, I was watching this and I was like, this is pretty interesting. But it was nothing of the kind in our case. It was literally picking up the phone and calling. And I found it really curious that it was so hard to verify facts in Nigeria because you would get a call. Somebody would say, hey, they've come to our village. They've attacked us. And you're like, oh, wow. And then you ask questions and you actually find by the time you've probed that this person actually lives in Abuja. He's got relatives in that village. Yes, they have been attacked, but he was not there. But he's giving you the mm -hmm. whole story based on what's been told to him by his relatives over there as if he was there. So that was really hard. 
where you've spent a whole conversation going on and then later you realize, oh wait, this guy wasn't there. Then you're like, okay, but is what he's telling me true or not? And then you have to go through a secondary fact check and uh, it was just a strain. And then you had the authorities, the government, who were not very keen on giving information out. There was a national emergency management agency and they were like the emergency response team. And they would always get there. And I liked that they always gave us factual information. And you get there, maybe there's a bomb or whatever, and they would say, there's a bomb. We've counted 15 bodies. People tell us they're still looking for other people. They would give us straight facts like that. And we used to report them and quote them a lot. And then they got into trouble with the government, with the rest of the larger government and the military, because the government's job basically was, if there's a bombing and 50 people have been killed, you say seven people have been killed. And then this agency comes and actually says, no, 50 people have been killed. And that kind of counters what the government's been trying to say. So their spokesman got in after a while, he started refusing to speak. So it was really hard for us to verify things. But occasionally we would get out, we'd do stories, we'd see things. But then there were all kinds of theories going on. Oh, Boko Haram, they're not from Nigeria, they're from Chad. There are all kinds of theories that among them, they're members of the army. We're just trying to sabotage things. Oh, they're being funded by politicians. And everybody and anybody spoke with authority as if they knew this group and gave you information as if it was fact. Nobody gave you the sense that they were speculating. Everybody spoke as if it was fact. And that's really hard for a journalist. So you have to sift through a lot of information to get to what the true facts are. But yes, we did get out there occasionally. Even there were times we had to fight with the military. And I was actually at the point even blacklisted by the army. And, <laughs> and they absolutely hated me because I used to just report what they didn't want to hear. And eventually, because they were basically abandoning their posts whenever an attack would happen, or, you know, soldiers run away or things like that. And we said, OK, if you want a better portrayal, then take us so that we too can show how you're working. They did offer the occasional trip and we got out there and saw things as well from their perspective. But I think they could have done a better job there of changing the narrative. All they did was if a reporter says something that we don't like, we demonize them and we call them terrorist sympathizers. And that was pretty much what it was like. So it was really hard. It was really hard. Yeah, wow. And so, I mean, you'd go out on trips sometimes when you would have to do it for TV. I mean, if you weren't with the military, were you basically limited to you would go interview local residents sometimes after attacks had happened? Or what would you show? What could you show on TV? I just realized I didn't answer your question properly. For radio, you could sort of get voices. You could speak to people in the street. But TV, you need to have something to show. And a lot of the time, it involved going to camps, camps for the displaced people. So you get to some of these camps and they've got like NGOs and they've got like UN taking care of people and feeding them. And you would get in and you'd be told, you know, there's a community that have just arrived from whatever town and they're in that corner of the camp. And you'd meet them and their community leader would come up and would say, hey, can you tell us what happened? And he'll talk and we're like, okay, fine. Can we speak to some of your people from your community? And it was basically one of those triage kind of who's got the worst story to tell. Oh, you've lost three kids, but they've lost. Because you can't get, you're only in that place for like two hours. And so sometimes you need to use up your two hours as well as possible. So you can't speak to everybody and get everybody's story as serious as everybody's story is. Sometimes you're looking for who's witnessed attacks. Sometimes you're looking for who's suffered in terms of physical or emotional, depending on what story it is. I remember one boy I interviewed and he basically was playing with his neighbors and an attack happened and they fled. 
And he fled with the neighbors and he didn't know where his family were because they fled in a different direction. And so you got a lot of those kinds of stories. So a lot of it was from within the camps. But sometimes if you were to move around other areas, you needed to get military permission. And that was almost impossible because the military didn't want you in there highlighting what's going on in there. Even though you were not necessarily saying the military is doing something bad, you're just trying to show the plight of the people. But the military were trying to give the impression that the whole place is under control because we say so. And we're like, no, we want to see. And so how they managed to control it was you get to a city like Meduguri. Meduguri is the main biggest city in the northeast where the conflict is happening. You can kind of report within Meduguri. But if you want to get out to where things are actually happening, there's a state of emergency. So the military can do or say what they want. And if you want to get out of the city, there are checkpoints and you stop. And then, of course, they'll ask you, where are you going? And they see you with cameras and everything and they know you're press and they'll say, we gave you permission to go. You need to get permission from our headquarters. When you call the headquarters, they'll tell you, oh, you need to get permission from Abuja, from the military headquarters in Abuja, basically the chief of army staff. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, I can't keep calling the top military man in Nigeria for every single story I want to do. But that is just how they frustrated a lot of the reporting. So many times we had hidden camera, you had interviews with people, their faces covered, even soldiers. Sometimes soldiers spoke to us and they spoke anonymously. But that was kind of how we got around, go to these camps and speak to people. We would meet people who would run away. Some people ran away from their towns, and because they had a bit of money, they would rather not sit in the camp. They'd go rent a flat somewhere and live and try and set up a business. And so we got to speak to a lot of those kinds of people, too. It was a mixed bag, but it wasn't quite what I expected it would be. It was really tough to get stories you could authenticate and tell the world. Yeah, that sounds tough. So you had said you were kind of doing this up until 2015, if I have that right. So what happens then? What's the next step? So it then happened that the conflict got progressively worse. I was reporting, doing all these major reports on the conflict, and it got to a point where it was daily and it was just death. It was such a depressing time, even for me and my colleagues as journalists. But it seemed my profile was actually rising in this dark time. And then the BBC created a job called Africa Security Correspondent. And I was also at this point where I was just getting really tired of Nigeria, tired of the Boko Haram story. I'm no expert. I don't want to self-diagnose, but I suppose it could be, be depression and what it was, what I was going through at the time. And then this job came up and I thought, let's give it a go. And I applied for it and I got the job. And the job required me to move back to Nairobi, back to Kenya, which I did. But then obviously I didn't move away from security, from you know, covering conflict. It was just moving away from covering one conflict to moving away to cover the continent. And so now my scope moved beyond Boko Haram. I was now covering the conflict in Mali, covering South Sudan, Sudan, Somalia, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and all these other conflicts that were raging around the continent. And that became my focus. But it was less frontline reporting this time, and it was more analysis, which I really enjoyed for many reasons, even just for my own sanity, but also because I felt like I grew my analytical skills by taking on this new job. And I got to sit back and write think pieces, so not just what happened, but even what's going to happen. So make predictions. I could write the whys and the hows a bit more than just the what. And I really enjoyed that. The job was also partly under a division of the BBC called BBC Monitoring, and they do media monitoring and geopolitical analysis and things like that. So I wrote a lot of dossiers for them and they also have their own clients and I got to consult for their clients and so that was a nice pivot for me 
away from my regular stressful day job. It wasn't without its own problems. I still got to do conflict reporting, but with less frequency. And so I did that until I left the BBC. I imagine that's good for your profile going from reporting one country to reporting a whole region. I'm sure it's much higher profile. So that takes us up to now. So you moved to Germany for this job for Deutsche Wells. Um, Deutsche Welle. And could you just, sorry? Deutsche Welle. How did that all happen? Having done my reporting for a while, again, you get to certain points in reporting where you feel you need a change. And for me, I think it was just the accumulation of stress over covering conflict. Conflict is so difficult to cover in the sense of what it does to you. And for me, it was just sad looking back at some of these stories. And some of these stories, you think back and you're like, how did I even get through that? Certain times we went out on trips and I'll get to my hotel room and just slam my head into my pillow and think, what kind of old world is this? And so all of that was taking its toll on me. And I felt like I wasn't giving my best. And after a while, I was just growing tired and so many other things and just wanting to do less traveling and just be more with my family and have a change altogether. So many factors, so many sure. personal factors, so many work factors, so many relational factors. It just happened another time that I got to meet one of the bosses here from DW and he said, hey, we like your work and we want you to come and do some presenting for us. And yeah, so that's how that move came about. I was happy to just change locations have a fresh outlook on a new place for me and just explore something else, new country, new language, new organization. And yeah, thoroughly enjoying it. Great. And I guess just give us some sense. I'm sure a lot of my listeners are in the US and Australia, actually. They're probably not too familiar with DW News. Give me some sense of what it's like and what your job is like. So DW News is obviously not the size of BBC type but it's pretty significant. They are a public broadcaster. And Germany has a lot of public broadcasters. The DW is the biggest and most well-known. They've got radio, they've got television. In radio, they've got different languages, so they reach out to audiences in different parts of the world. And then television, they've also got different languages, Arabic, Spanish, and German and English. And so I'm in the English division, and we just sort of give a different perspective, really. There's great focus on Europe, great focus on Germany, but also great focus on the world, and it's a different style of story. Um, you know what? I, I, I Sometimes I look at it and I think, you know, it's, it's just storytelling. It's just storytelling, just a different set of people telling stories, because I've done some reports I've done a, some desk reporting here at DW, and it's not been too much different from the way I would have done it at the BBC. So I can't really say there's that vast difference, but it is what it is. And this is an organization. It's not license fee funded the way the BBC is. This is more government funded directly. Mm -hmm. So it's a public broadcaster. And I think they have a, there is a program that goes out on PBS, if I'm not wrong, a program called The Day. Called what? The Day. So some American viewers might have seen that. Okay. And I imagine in this job, your focus is more on news presenting than it was at, obviously at BBC, they have their news presenters back in the home office. So it's more about doing field reports. So here you're behind a desk, reading copy, doing interviews on cam like live on camera, that sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, occasionally I do reporter shifts as well, where I come in and 
look at stuff off of the agencies and look for whatever story's been happening in any corner of the world and write a report on that. But yes, the majority is presenting. So I present the news. And as I said, you know, when I first had my dream to be a journalist, it was to be a presenter. You know, when I saw Riz Khan behind that desk, that's kind of what I wanted to be. So just the opportunity to do that now, I thoroughly enjoy that. So yeah, I do mostly nightly presenting. Yeah. So it's very different from field reporting, obviously. It's a calmer environment. But it also requires a lot of alertness. It requires good, clear scripting. You need to be able to get your point across in a certain number of words within time and reading at a certain pace. As a reporter in the field, you have time to edit. Even if you're doing a live report, you can be cut off and that's fine. But the presenter, you're not the one who has to do the cutting off. And so you have to be on the ball. And so it's a different set of skills that you need to pick up. You have to be alert. You have to look alert. In the field, you can be all shaggy because you're a field reporter. Now you have to be sort of crisp and, you know, well-groomed. It's different, but I really enjoy it. And telling stories from around the world and speaking to people from around the world, be they experts or correspondents or whoever, it's something I enjoy doing. I have always wanted to end up as a presenter, and I'm glad I'm here now and love to do it for a long time to come. That's great. Yeah, I imagine it requires a lot of poise. And is the audience mostly, or what is your conception of your audience? Is it mostly geared towards English-speaking people in continental Europe, or where do you aim for who's your reader in your mind, or your watcher, rather? So traditionally, from the conversations I've had with teams behind the scenes, they believe that a lot of the DW News audience are business travelers in hotels, and they're trying to reach more to a younger person in Africa or in Asia, from teenage all the way to 40s, 30s, 40s. So I guess it depends on what you're doing and what time of the day, because late night when I'm on is morning in Asia. So I suppose those would be a lot of the people who would be watching then, or Americans sort of ending their day. So I guess it just depends on where you are, but they're doing quite a lot to try and reach those audiences, not just from the daily news, but also from the kinds of social media content and documentaries and things like that. They seem to be reaching out to these younger urban audiences, you know. Yeah, going broad spectrum as it gets, uh, you know, like the BBC, it's 24 hours and it's on no matter whether you're in Asia or in Germany or in the US, whenever they happen to be tuning in. That's exciting. And then if it's all right with you, I'd like to move on to the section about stories. And so if something comes to mind, what is a story that you feel got away for whatever reason, whether you couldn't convince an editor, you couldn't prove it, you couldn't get a key source to go on camera or on record, a reporting trip that went horribly wrong, anything really. But is there a story you wish you had reported that you weren't able to do? There's a long list of those, but I think the one that stands out for me is Zimbabwe. Just a year, well, it's been over a year now, but the fall of Robert Mugabe. So I was all set to go when I was in the BBC and I was in Nairobi and getting ready to go to Zimbabwe to report on this coup, a so-called military coup and rise of protests against Robert Mugabe. And for many reasons, I've always wanted to go to Zimbabwe. It always seemed like such a lovely country, but even my wife is from Zimbabwe, so that was even more reason to get out there. But it was so annoying that I couldn't go because I was actually one of the early teams supposed to head in there and I couldn't go because I was not granted a visa. My visa application was denied a lot of other colleagues were able to go because they were Brits. And it just really annoyed me that somebody with a British passport can get into an African country and me, 
with a Nigerian passport, I cannot get in. And that basically has been the frustration I have suffered as a journalist, which is that my passport limits where I can go to. So that really frustrated me because I was the biggest story in the world at the time. And I could have been there to witness this. And I couldn't, not because of anything I did wrong, but just because I have the wrong passport. Even worse, because it's another African country. So, yeah, that really frustrated me. Yeah, that sucks. Honestly, I've heard that from different journalists, like whether it's uh, some colleagues who have been kicked out of China because they won't renew their visa and they never really explain why. <clears throat> or I talked to a journalist with an Afghanistan and a U.S. passport and they were supposed to go to Iran and report and then everything got blocked. The origin of your passport is unfortunately often determinant of who gets to report on certain countries especially some that are very strict. But yeah, that's especially disheartening that it's a fellow African country yeah, denying but, your you know, visa, but letting in Brits, I mean, it, that makes little sense given the colonial history that it would be that exactly. way. Exactly. And that's the annoying thing for me, that for some of us who's come from certain countries, I would say African countries are in there with some of the Arabs in the sense that you're going to a country, yes, you have these problems. I mean, if you're going to an authoritarian country, you kind of expect that. But sometimes you just want to travel to Europe. You just want to travel to America. You just want to travel to somewhere sane, if you can call it that, and you still get the same treatment. So that is such a difficult thing. And even within Africa, the only sort of, if you can call it privilege, and I hate that word, the only privilege for me was traveling within West Africa because there's a kind of West African passport, if you can call it that. West Africans can travel across the region freely. But beyond there you're pretty much at the mercy of whoever the visa officer is. I have horror stories, really, if I can call them that, from visa applications to many countries that I thought were decent, sane countries. Yeah. Suddenly I remembered <laughs> applying for my Nigerian visa, and that was quite an experience. Uh, yeah. Strange, yeah. a lot of sitting around, and then I get yeah. called into a room and asked a bunch of seemingly nonsensical questions. Yeah. And they're like, okay, fine, sure. But that, this is after I turned over all my financial records and all those sorts of things. But I mean, generally, as an American, I have it pretty easy, so I cannot complain if they make it a little hard on me. And uh, and then, yeah, next, let's talk about a story you're proud of. If you can pick a story you've done in your career and just explain a little bit about what it was about and how you went about it from start to finish, if there's any story behind getting the idea and reporting it out and how it came out in the end. Now, with this, this is really difficult for me because I have stories I've done which have gone out and had a major impact and... Naturally, you'd expect that those would be the ones I am most proud of. But a lot of the stories, I don't really enjoy watching them back because a lot of them had to do with conflict. A lot of them had to do with pain. Even stories that I would win an award for or something, I don't think I necessarily enjoy looking back at them, even though the process was well good. And so the one I'm actually really proud of, funny enough, is a more recent one. And it was in Sudan. And it was... One that I was working with this video producer called Chris Parkinson. And this was after the fall of the regime in Sudan. And we were going in phases, basically. So you have a broadcast team that would go in and they would spend some time. And then another team would go in and it was on and on like that. And then I went in. So Chris and I were, were working and we were like, okay, basically the story has been reported and reported and reported. And how else can we tell the story? All the possible political analysis has been done. How else can we tell it? 
And we thought, okay, let's look at one of the triggers of this whole thing. And that was that the internet was the platform on which a lot of people congregated and planned protests. And people forget that something as basic as the internet is such a great tool. And once the internet was shut off, all of a sudden people could not gather and protest. So we took that and said, okay, how can we then tell the story from that angle? So we basically just linked the silence because there had been a lot of protests and all of a sudden there were no protests. And that coincided with the switching off of the internet. So we were just linking the two, <laughs> the basic simple journalism, but I really enjoyed the creative process. And we went out and there wasn't too much to film, but we found a way of filming it in a very engaging way, mix of graphics and me in the street and talking to people, young people and an old taxi driver and just sort of that creative process. I thoroughly enjoyed how we put it together. And I even enjoyed more just watching it back and I think you can look it up by just searching, has an internet blackout killed Sudan's revolution? And that was it, just how the switch off affected the ability of the protesters to gather and organize. Not an award-winning story, but for me, basic, simple, creative journalism. And that for me is what I enjoy. Yeah, that's a great angle. Maybe you said it already, but when exactly was this and what was going on in Sudan right then? So this was last year, 2019, June. In April, I believe, basically there was the head of state, I forget his name now, as it vanished from my head, Omar al-Bashir is his name. Okay. So the head of state, Omar al-Bashir, had been in power for a long time, and then this uprising begins, and so it was a public uprising because of the hardship of life, and then his military took the side of the protesters and toppled him, and so... So kind of almost like a belated Arab Spring. But yeah, that's essentially what happened there. And mm -hmm. so what happens when, as they were trying to fight, the military took over, they were not listening to the mass protests, even though the mass protesters were the ones who gave them the room to topple the boss. And so people then began to protest against the military. And so the military responded by switching off the internet and by setting roadblocks up and patrolling the streets and so we got in at that time, and we were just reporting on that aftermath. Sure, and people were willing to speak openly about it, I imagine. Protesters wanted to get their message out. Surprisingly, yes. And it was a lot of young people. I guess young people don't have the same hang-ups their parents did, so there was silence for such a long time, and all of a sudden the young people were just like, no, 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 we want freedom. And so they were a lot more vocal than many people expected. But because I had reported from Sudan a bit before that, I had seen some of that. And you could see that these young people are not what you would expect. Sudan was a lot more of an open society than one would think. But you had to go there to see it because there wasn't much reporting going on. So it was just really interesting that when it came to telling stories, they were out there. There was a whole lot of citizen journalism that went on during those protests. And that's why they could have it, because they stood up for themselves. They spoke out. So speaking to us was the least of their worries because they actually took to the streets and faced off against the army. Obviously, yeah, I could see how the Internet would be critical to that. You can't get citizen journalism out there without the Internet. So next up is the lightning round, as I call it. So do you feel ready? I, I hope so. <laughs> Here we go. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day? Twitter, obviously. <laughs> sure, yeah. No, but um, 
I do a lot of these sort of digests, so what you need to know for the day. So I do New York Times and I do Financial Times. But I would say FT is probably the one I thoroughly enjoy. I'm a big fan of the FT, and I've met a lot of FT journalists, and they seem to be some of the smartest people I've ever met and the smartest journalists I've ever met. And so, yeah, I'm just a big fan of, of their journalism. Cool. Yeah, I haven't heard a lot of love for the FT on here, so that's good to hear. I feel like for a lot of people, it's very much more popular in Europe and a lot of other places they find. The paywall is too high for many Americans to dabble in reading the FT, I find. But they do great stuff, great journalism, and I have a lot of friends who work there. So good to hear them getting some love. The next question, what is a publication you read, listen to, or watch just for fun? I mean, it's probably podcasts, really. But I have my seasons with podcasts, and sometimes I go through one, and after a while I get tired, and I go through another. So I'm trying to think. The one I'm most consistent with, weirdly enough, is a sports one, and it's The Athletic. I don't know how big The Athletic is in the U.S., but they just got a U.K. edition, so it's got a lot of football on it, and I like that. So you're talking more about the podcast specifically, more so than their website? They've got a range of podcasts, and depending on which reporter it is or which team or which league. And so I listened to a few of those. But what they did was, at least in the UK, they poached a lot of local reporters. So let's say you've got like the local reporter who reports for, say, Manchester Chronicle. I don't know. I don't know if it's a Manchester Chronicle, but let's say like it was like the biggest local website, and then they pick that top reporter and poach that person so that's what they did for a lot of when they started the uk side so it's a lot of top reporters who are already well known within their local settings and just brought them over cool yeah i'll have to check it out for american football and then what is the best journalistic piece again it can be whatever medium that you've consumed lately you know what i've actually been Disappointed by a lot of journalism lately, especially with the coronavirus. I just find that journalists have basically been running around like headless chickens, swaying from one thing to another. And, and I feel like journalism in this period has been sort of all over the place. And I'm talking not in terms of the constraints, but in terms of the actual questioning and being on the ball. So I will point to a piece that happened just before, which was one by a freelance journalist called Emmanuel Fredentel. And he went to the Democratic Republic of Congo and did a great piece on Ebola and just how they're handling the remnant of the disease there. And the piece is titled Hazardous Handshakes and Other Indignities in the Time of Ebola. And it's such a beautifully written piece. Literally every sentence of that piece is just so well written. And it's not the most glamorous piece. It's not one of the ones that gets the biggest hits. I think it was put out on the new humanitarian. So he did that piece and I just thought it was really good. Cool. I'll have to check it out. I haven't heard of him or it, but it sounds very interesting. And especially in light of Ebola as a different kind of outbreak. But, uh, you know, I wonder if it'll read in a different light now with everything that's going on. And then the next question is, is there any particular subject matter you read into that isn't related to your job? So I'm a big fan of the jazz history, or rather old jazz. So uh, sure. you're talking 1940s to, I guess, late 60s. So bebop, hard bop era, 
So that's my thing. And I'm reading a book called Giant Steps by Ken Matheson. I'm a big fan of music and different genres, but I find jazz of that era just something else. And I think we got the best of musicianship in that time. And it was crazy that all these artists were hanging around in New York, or at least trying to find their way there. And you got all these people around the same time, just a couple of decades, some of the best musicians of all time congregated around one place. And I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy that. I watched a documentary recently called A Great Day in Harlem, I think is what it's called. And basically, it was about this photograph where a photographer took a photo for Esquire magazine and got all the big names, literally all of them, a group of them, they stood on the steps of a building and we took this big photo the documentaries about how he got them together and so yeah i just love those stories you know checking in on miles davis or charles mingus or Thelonious monk and all these guys i'm a big big fan of that whole scene very cool and then how do you manage your work-life balance or do you even believe in it i think to get the best out of your work you need to have a life that functions and for me at the moment i'm Actually, pretty delighted with what I've got right now, which allows me enough time to be with family and enough time to do my work well, as opposed to when I was a field reporter where work was my life and I didn't really have too much of a life outside work because I was chasing breaking news 24-7. So at the moment, I have very little qualms about work-life balance. It's flowing as it should. I don't really bring work home. So, yeah. That's great. And then is Twitter important to you? It is. Sometimes I get too much into it. And just two days ago, I deleted the app from my phone. I've still got the app on my tablet, but because I use my tablet less, it's harder to get onto the tablet. It means I'm not whipping out my phone every two minutes to check what's on Twitter, just the access. But I also sometimes think that Twitter can be a bit too much of a, hey, look at me, look how smart I am, or look how controversial I can be. Or you know, I remember when I was growing up and my dad used to tell me, because he felt I used to argue too much. I used to answer back and argue when he'd tell me off. And, and he used to say, God gave you two ears and one mouth to listen twice as much as you speak. And I feel like we're not doing enough listening on Twitter. I feel like too many people are trying to be heard. And there's little God. I think people are just speaking before thinking. So that's the downside. But overall, I enjoy the space and I enjoy the conversation. Okay. And then the next question is, if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? That's easy. Walter Cronkite, I think, had the best career of any journalist in the world over everything from the wars to Vietnam to Kennedy to Martin Luther King Jr. and to all these great events. I think no one had it quite like him. Good answer. The most trusted man in news. I'm surprised you're the first one actually to say it. Weirdly enough, he doesn't come up in conversation that much today. And I feel like we need to do a bit more reflecting on people like this from the past. For sure. Yeah, I haven't heard much about him lately. And then what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist? Oh, I think that I bring a fresh angle. I like to think I'm a bit less conventional in the way I look at things. At least let me go off what people have said about the way I report. And one word that's been used to describe me has been fresh or refreshing. And I guess that maybe says something about my storytelling being less conventional and being relatable. And I find that a lot of journalists, especially in broadcasting, do their journalism with the newsroom in focus and sometimes forget that there is an audience at home 
And my mates, a lot of my friends don't care about the news that much. So how would I make this interesting for them and easily understandable? And I think that that's the driver for me. And I think that's what I deliver in terms of the way I tell stories and the kinds of stories I tell. Good answer. That's a good way to go about it. And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Oh, you know, I talked about my six to nine year old self. I would say keep <laughs> going at that level. I think when I was a teenager, I barely read a book through teenager, maybe a couple of hardy boys here and there. But if my young self had carried on reading, carried on with analysis, carried on with engaging and asking questions, I don't know where I'd be today, but I think that was a great start for me. And maybe I also just felt like I wasn't having fun and I wanted to just have fun. I was missing out on stuff. And so I tell my young self that fun is overrated. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I would say I'm similar in that I feel like I was such a serious student in high school and like I lived and breathed like reading and studying. And at some point I just became a bit more normal. <laughs> I guess I just wanted to have fun. And then what is one thing that most people don't know about you? Uh, wow. I don't know. I'm pretty much an open book, I think. Maybe from a journalistic point of view, I would say I hate being at the center of the story. I hate being the story. I hate journalism that makes the reporter the focus. And it's weird because, yeah, I'm a TV presenter. so. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I just think that people need to get out of the way and, and think less of themselves. And I don't think I enjoy being the focus of things. So, yeah, I guess that would be it, that as much as my day job is to be on screen, I actually enjoy being on screen, but I don't like being the focus. I like to be able to create that distinction. That makes sense. And yeah, I feel that's unexpected given your current job. And then what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists and why? There's a really, really good book called The Bang Bang Club. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it is set in South Africa towards the end of apartheid. And basically the story is about these four young photographers who follow a lot of the political violence around South Africa and tell their story. I think there's also a film adaptation of it. I don't know which came first, but it's such a good book. And so these four young journalists saw a lot of violence in their time. And basically the bang, bang aspect of it was basically the sound of gunfire. But these people were always, always first on the scene, or at least early on the scene. One of them, Kevin Carter, was a photographer who won a Pulitzer Prize. And I think he's probably the most famous of them. But he won the prize for his photography work in Sudan, photographing the famine there in the early 90s. And there's a photograph that he sold to the New York Times, which had a starving girl on bones, and there was a vulture nearby. And I don't know if you've seen that photo. And, yeah, um, yeah, no, very famous yeah, so he, photo. Yeah, so he took that photo. So yeah, it's a story of those guys and just their time covering that era and the depression and the death and the wounds. That name sounds very familiar, but yeah, I didn't know exactly what it was about. And yeah, that story of that photographer taking that photo and the classic journalist dilemma of do you help, what do you do in that situation commonly comes up. I think anybody who's touched a journalism class has usually heard about it. But things really didn't end well for that guy, I seem to remember. He got deeply depressed and he'd seen exactly. some horrible things. It's weird because, I mean, obviously a lot of journalists have gone through those kinds of 
scenarios. But I had a recent one. It was in Nairobi in Kenya. Just I don't know if you heard of the attack that went on when terrorists attacked a hotel just beginning of last year, I think it was. Yeah, I remember, yeah. And I was one of the early journalists on the scene and reporting. And we got to a place where we were all stood outside this building. And this man, one of the, I guess, a citizen who had a, a gun, was part of the people helping respond. And there was someone who was injured. And he said, you know, I'm going to need help because the people who need to get out. And so we all thought, nah, we're journalists. We can't join you in this. But he literally came dragging this guy on the ground. And so I stopped. And I thought, of course, we go help him. And so myself and a couple of colleagues ran across, helped him drag this guy. And there's like probably two, three dozen journalists all stood there in that sort of safe area where we were. And nobody helped. And when we were going across, everybody turned their cameras on us and took photos. And so there's a photo of me that appeared in like the New York Times and all over the place of me helping carry. I didn't like that because I thought you people could have joined us in helping to carry these couple of injured people. I was really upset at the time. So in talking about this story, actually, of, of that guy takes me back there. Sad story in our case is that the guy we helped eventually died. But it's part of those things you come across in journalism where I always say we're human first. And a lot of these scenarios we're faced with, you have to think about what would I do? Or would I just watch a guy bleed to death in front of me? Or would I run across 20 meters and carry this guy? So anyway, I don't know why that came to my head. No, it's an extremely poignant story that's uh, i imagine even with the new york times photo and all that uh, you're better off having acted rather than regretting your lack of action having terrible consequences yeah and then the last question is qualifications aside if you couldn't be a journalist what job would you do i have actually considered at some point moving into sort of the geopolitical risk analysis scene and I have considered academia as well because I've got chances to be a guest lecturer and I thoroughly enjoy that. Maybe something along those lines. Research yep. or teaching, yeah. Following your parents' footsteps, the professors. Exactly. Okay, great. Uh, so that's all of my questions. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Tommy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Tommy Aladipo, a news presenter for DW News in Berlin. I'll post links to some of Tommy's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star rating. Beyond that, it would also be a huge help if you also write out a positive review saying what you like about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Makai Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, July 12th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence. Foreign Correspondence.